Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. It's Monday, June 18th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I am Andre Viscontis. Kishore is still on break. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can also get an ad-free version of our show by supporting us at the $5 or more levels at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Last week, we talked to Peter Rubin, a senior editor at Wired who covers virtual reality, about the ways in which virtual reality might change how we view ourselves and our connections with others. This week, we're tackling artificial intelligence in a broad sense, but from the data science perspective. So Silicon Valley titans like Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk disagree as to how big a threat artificial intelligence is to humanity. Musk's stance is that this is really something that we need to worry very deeply about because artificial intelligence will eventually make humans obsolete. Zuckerberg disagrees. And of course, Facebook has a hand in developing the kind of artificial intelligence that Elon Musk is really quite afraid of. But where are we in terms of developing artificial intelligence? And what can data science tell us about how we are currently using it in our lives? Is AI already changing the way that we think and the way that we interact with each other? So this week, I spoke to James Scott. He's the Associate Professor of Statistics at the University of Texas, Austin, a statistician and a data scientist, and he works with clients in many different industries to understand the power of data. He wrote a book along with Nick Polson, who's a professor of econometrics and statistics at the Chicago Booth School of Business, and their book is called AIQ, how people and machines are smarter together. I talked to James about how artificial intelligence is already changing many of our behaviors and whether there's something that we should do about it. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with James Scott. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning about science, technology, engineering, art, and math fun. I recently got a box from Kiwi.co, and I have to say it's been really fun working on the different craft projects with my son. We got to make felt rainbows and learn about how rainbows are made in the sky. And then when we were driving one day, he actually saw a rainbow and recited about half of the things that we had taught him. So apparently it works. KiwiCo's mission is to provide the next generation of innovators with the tools and foundation they need to become creative problem solvers and critical thinkers. 
They have five different types of projects. So there's something for kids of all ages, from two to three, all the way to nine through 16. They create hands-on projects for kids that are not only super fun, but also educational in a really cool way. And the crafts you make from the Kiwi.co box are the kind that you actually might want to keep, not secretly toss. KiwiCo wants kids to be fearless innovators. They design projects to help them develop their creativity, and they deliver convenience. Absolutely everything you need to build a project is in the box, which means no extra trips to places like Target or craft stores. Gifting a KiwiCo subscription to the kid in your life will make them smarter and quite possibly make you their favorite person. KiwiCo is offering Inquiring Minds listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids, visit kiwico.com slash minds. Again, that's kiwico, so K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash minds to try KiwiCo for free. Want to know an easy way to save money? Lower the interest rate on your credit card debt with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Lightstream rewards customers who have good credit with a great interest rate and no fees. Get a credit card consolidation loan from 5.89 APR with AutoPay. Choose your funding date. It can be as soon as today. The website is intuitive, it's easy to navigate, and it only takes a few minutes. And our listeners get an additional interest rate discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. So the only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash minds. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash minds. Subject to credit approval, rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com for more information. James Scott, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you, Andre. It's nice to be here. So Elon Musk is now sort of famous for saying that the greatest challenge that civilization is, is facing is artificial intelligence. And you disagree. So tell us why. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I uh, respect Elon Musk a great deal, but I have to say, I think the evil robot narrative that he favors really is a, a dangerous myth uh, that distracts us from the truly important policy issues around AI. I mean, I, I'm ultimately optimistic about what AI will bring us as a society. Uh, I do think it's inevitable that these new technologies will reflect our weak spots as a society, uh, which means that there are going to be some things to watch out for. Uh, and when I make that list, I come up with a lot of things. I come up with jobs. I come up with concerns about inequality, about bias in decision-making, uh, about privacy. Uh, but the one thing I don't think of is the threat of self-aware killer robots, which seems to be the fear on a lot of people's minds. I mean, the fact of the matter is nobody has any clue how to build a robot with general domain independent intelligence. Uh, and uh, I think the the idea that somehow that is just over the horizon and that there will be a whole host of negatives associated with that really does distract us from thinking about the important things. So that kind of gets me to uh, the changing definition of artificial intelligence. You know, when I when I first came across the term, it really was about, you know, this idea of mimicking the human brain in a machine in all of its capacity. And now it seems like that we have to get more specific about what it is that we're talking about, because, you know, you're right. We don't have humanoid like robots who, you know, can do all the different things that our brains can do. But we have machines that are much smarter than us in very specific ways. That's right. And people talk about the difference between weak or strong AI or broad and narrow AI. 
Uh, and I think that the uh, it is absolutely the case that computer scientists and folks who think about machine learning uh, maybe have had this dream for a long time, or maybe for some it's a nightmare of building the domain-independent, broad-spectrum, general AI. Uh, but I think maybe it's uh, it's crept up on us a little bit, uh, the extent to which the narrow form uh, of AI has become so prevalent and so powerful uh, and so ubiquitous behind everything from social networking to cancer therapy to uh, if you visit Beijing these days, you'll find AI running the locks on the toilets in the Temple of Heaven Park. Uh, it is everywhere. Uh, and it's it's not the strong AI. It's the narrow AI uh, that I think uh, is the one that has an incredible amount of potential. Uh, and yeah, to be sure, some pitfalls that I'm happy to talk about. Yeah, so those of us who are kind of outside the the realm of computer science or who don't have uh, a degree in data science, you know, it seems really intractable to even begin to understand what a, an, an AI would do, or or rather, what an algorithm, uh, in particular, as you sort of describe it, would, you know, how how it works. Uh, so how in Beijing does that, you know, face recognition software um, actually tell whether you've been to the toilet in the last nine minutes? I think that you, why, why don't I let you tell the story? And uh, and I'd like to get a little bit into sort of the way, the process by which a lot of these algorithms function. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, the backstory here is that at some point uh, in maybe mid-2017, officials in Beijing realized that they had a problem with toilet paper theft in the Temple of Heaven Park uh, in Beijing. Uh, and, you know, who knows what was causing it? You know, we kind of tell a funny story about, uh, you know, a ring of toilet paper thieves in our in our book, AIQ. But I really think, um, uh, you know, they had a, a number of options on the table, one of which was to hire bouncers to guard the toilet paper, which seemed a little bit extreme. Uh, but, you know, this being Beijing and this being 2017, uh, they decided to take the AI solution instead, which is to install face recognition software on all the toilets in Temple of Heaven Park. Uh, and if you had visited a toilet in the last nine minutes uh, and the face recognition software saw that you'd done that, uh, then sorry, you know, you didn't get your six squares or 40 centimeters of toilet paper or whatever it was. Um, now, predictably, you can imagine a whole lot of logistical and uh, privacy kind of concerns have arisen about this. But, you know, I guess the, the point of telling that story is that, yeah, AI really is everywhere these days. And if you want to understand the modern world, you really have to understand how these things work. Now, as far as how that specific algorithm works, it's all data. Uh, there is a vast database of faces associated with it, uh, and the, the algorithm learns to map a particular configuration of pixels in the image of face, uh, of face to a particular label. Uh, this is the person that was there at this particular timestamp. Uh, it's not as though some programmer sat down and told the algorithm, hey, here's the incredibly complicated decision tree over how you would assemble every possible configuration of pixels into a decision about who's in the image. It's really just learning patterns from data. Now, as far as the details, well, you know, that there's textbooks and courses on the, you know, the really, really nitty gritty details of that stuff. Uh, you know, I think there's some good analogies with how humans process, uh, vi have visual competence. Uh, and, you know, we certainly talk about a lot of that uh, in AIQ. Yeah. So, so let me, let me ask you then, you know, there, if you, if you have the problem of, of being the person who's programming the face recognition software, do in in most cases now in in sort of modern programming do you start with how the brain does it if we understand it or do you start already in a different you know with, with a different toolkit there's a loose analogy uh, in ai with how the brain performs certain tasks uh, and that loose analogy i think is is made a little bit more tight there's kind of this psychosemantic trap that people fall into when they learn about something called neural networks 
uh, in AI. Uh, that sounds very brain-like, but in reality, all a neural network is is a really complicated equation that's capable of explaining a really, really complicated pattern uh, in data and mapping patterns in data to some kind of outcome. Uh, so I, the the historical development of neural networks, that lingo of neural networks, uh, absolutely kind of grew up around uh, an association between what the brain might or might not be doing. Uh, but you know, the modern kind of understanding of neural networks is really just a very rich kind of mathematical equation that's capable of capturing very complicated patterns. Yeah. So I remember there was a time, I don't know, maybe like 10 or 15 years ago when there seemed to be more of a convergence between neuroscientists and and data scientists or computer scientists who were doing this kind of programming, you know, in an attempt to sort of learn from each other. Uh, and, and lately, though, it seems like that's diverging more and more, that the way that data scientists are solving a lot of solutions really has nothing to do with how our brains might be doing it. Yeah, well, I think some of the the tools in the toolkit that data scientists use these days are very much a product of those kinds of collaborations and conversations between neuroscientists and uh, and machine learning data scientist types. Uh, and neural networks are the paradigmatic example of that. They they really do have there is a a nice analogy with human brains, even if it's not a, a literal physiological description of of what's going on upstairs. Uh, and so it's very much the case that uh, a huge amount of of data science work these days is built on neural networks, whether that is uh, you know toilets in Beijing, whether that that is the kind of face detection software uh, that is used in, uh, you know, in security applications like your new iPhone. There's a new network, a neural network behind the face recognition software in the latest version of the iPhone. There are neural networks that power Google's image recognition software, the kind of software that would autom- it allow it to automatically tell the difference between, say, a, a Siberian Husky and an Alaskan Malamute on the basis of a simple picture. Uh, and, and so that toolkit was established uh, really as part of that ongoing collaboration between neuroscientists and data scientists. You're absolutely right, however, that you know once that toolkit is in place, you can think about that as, as tools for its own sake. And you don't have to continue making that analogy asking, hmm, what does the brain do? And should I always be anchored in what the brain does in order to make improvements on these tools? Uh, you, you can think of them just for their own sake as complicated equations that can be tweaked in particular ways and, and uh, brought, bringing new and interesting structure to the kind of uh, equations that could describe patterns in language, the kind of equations that could describe patterns in images or sound. So uh, they really do have a life of their own, even if their historical genesis was out of a collaboration with neuroscientists. Yeah. So like, how do you teach your students knowing that 20 years from now, uh, things are going to be very different still? Um, like, what, what, what kinds of tools do you give them that, that will last the test of time? Well, it's funny you say that. I, I actually think that the historical arc is maybe a little bit longer and a little bit slower than most people give it credit for. Uh, I mean, we think of all of these ideas in AI as being very new, uh, and they certainly seem new, but most of them are actually pretty old, uh, in many cases, centuries old. And our ancestors have been using these ideas to solve problems for generations. Uh, you know, if you take the example of some of the key mathematical technology that's at the heart of a self-driving car. Well, it turns out that one of the major equations about how a a self-driving car locates itself on the road and knows where it is uh, dates back to the mid-1750s. And it was used for pretty much the last 250 years, including in the Cold War to solve mysteries like, where is this lost submarine? It was used to locate U-boats in World War II. Uh, Or if you look at the principle behind like the face recognition software on the toilets in Beijing, 
you can date the underlying data analysis concept there all the way back to 1805. And a French mathematician by the name of Adrien-Marie Legendre articulated a principle called least squares. Uh, the idea there being that we can describe a pattern in data using an equation and we can fit that equation to, to fit the data best. So these ideas actually have a much slower fuse, I think, than, uh, than a lot of people give them credit for. And, and these ideas are quite old, even, even though they seem new. I think what's really different is not the ideas, uh, but so much as the technology, uh, the computational infrastructure that surrounds the application of these ideas in modern AI. So I, I feel confident that I can uh, future-proof my students just by equipping them with the right mathematical tools uh, and uh, and send them on their way, trusting them to, uh, to learn the right computational infrastructure in 20, 30, 40 years hence. So uh, let's equip our listeners with one of those tools that I think is particularly important uh, and often very difficult to understand. It seems simple at first, but the more you delve into it, the more quickly you realize that you can make a mistake. Um, and, and let's start with the story of uh, how of the bombers coming back during the Second World War and how that sort of led to um, a, a sort of application of, of conditional probability. Right. So, so conditional probability is just the mathematician's way of making judgments about uncertain events in light of uh, impartial or imperfect information. Uh, so that, that kind of uh, mathematics really underpins everything to do in the digital economy these days. The, the, uh, the archetypal example is Netflix. There, the conditional probability statements would be, you know, what's the probability that you might want to watch Band of Brothers when you sit down with some popcorn on the sofa tonight? And there, the information that they would bring to the table would be your movie watching history. You know, maybe you watched Saving Private Ryan, and that would drastically uh, increase the chance that you'd like to watch Band of Brothers. And, and so, those kinds of patterns that are to be found in your uh, viewing history are uh, mathematically tractable. They can be explained using the language of conditional probability. Uh, and a company like Netflix or Spotify can use them to make pop culture recommendations. Uh, and it's all conditional probability. That's not a new idea, uh, and you know, th there's a really interesting parallel application of conditional probability going back all the way 70 years. So you know, I actually think that if you want to understand how conditional probability plays a role in the modern age, you know, don't start in the, uh, in the living room of a cord-cutting millennial in Brooklyn or, or Shoreditch in London. Uh, really go back to World War II uh, because the, there was a fantastic example of a mathematician named Abraham Wald who was a refugee uh, from Austria-Hungary uh, in the wake of the, the breakup of that country and the annexation of that country by Nazi Germany. He came to America. He ended up at Columbia University. And he used those very same mathematical tools about conditional probability, trying to make judgments about uncertain events in the wake of partial information, uh, to make personalized survivorship recommendations to the Air Force uh, to figure out how they could personalize the armor locations on various models of airplanes. And that would be different for something like a P-51 versus a B-52 bomber. And I think this is just one example uh, of, of that phenomenon I pointed to, that no matter where you look in AI, you will find an idea that people have been kicking around for a very long time. Let's talk a little bit about one of the more difficult or, you know, problems of AI. I think, I think you know, understanding conditional probability helps us understand how a lot of these, uh, you know, companies can give suggestions, uh, you know, Spotify, Netflix, you know, Amazon, as you mentioned, if, depending on the data that they've collected in the past. But what about something which seems much less tractable, like language processing? You know, it seems like the, the tools for language processing have really gotten a lot better in the last 10 years, but they were pretty bad at first. So 
what's been the big sort of leap that is, has allowed uh, me to tell you know Google Home or or Siri what it is that I want and and have a pretty good chance of being understood. Yeah, I think uh, it comes back to these key ideas of uh, of neural networks that we talked about a lot. Uh, that coupled with the tremendous amount of data on language that is now available. Um, and there's a really interesting history behind the arc of uh, language-aware machines, of computer language recognition, speech recognition, that kind of thing. And you are right. They have gotten uh, tremendously better in a very, very, very short period of time. You know, It wasn't all that long ago, the mid-2000s, when computer speech recognition software was you – know, well, not useless. It was far from just an out-of-the-box kind of technology where you could just dictate an email to your phone or – uh, speak into your computer a grocery list and expect it to get it, you know, with 90, 95% accuracy. And even the mistakes were kind of easy to understand. It would make howlers. It would make things that a, a human five-year-old would never misunderstand. And it's in a very, very short period of time. And I'm talking, you know, four or five years here that we've gone from nearly useless as computer speech recognition for practical, everyday kind of retail technology purposes to pretty darn good, where you can, you know, ask an Amazon Alexa, or Amazon Echo rather, hey Alexa, you know, what's a recipe for spaghetti bolognese? And she'll give you the list and she'll tell you where you can buy the ingredients. And the story of how that happened, uh, well, there's really two stories, and I'll only tell the second of these two stories, uh, and it has to do with the use of data. Uh, for the longest time, uh, machine learning experts who thought about natural language processing tried to program computers with explicit rules in the same way that you might teach grammar to a third grader. Uh, and they recognized that that simply wasn't working. Uh, and they made a, a real paradigm, uh, paradigm shift. Uh, it started to happen in the 70s and, and sort of gathered steam through the 80s and really culminated uh, with tools like an Amazon Echo or, uh, you know, Google Translate, these kinds of tools uh, in the mid-2010s, really, you know, 2014, 2015. Uh, and it was data that drove all of this. Um, a lot of this data just kind of fell into the laps of the major Silicon Valley firms, uh, you know, search data, web query data. Uh, web crawling data from all of the web pages and all of the books of the world. Uh, and a lot of it, they, they went out of their way to collect themselves. Uh, and so believe it or not, as we sit here in 2018, the best way to get a computer to learn language is not to sort of program it with the rules of syntax, the rules of grammar, the rules of diction, what words mean what. The best way to get a computer to learn language is to give it an enormous hard drive full of examples of how human beings do it and to let it learn itself. Yeah, which which takes me back to that same issue where the solution for AI uh, is actually you know you have to you have to stop thinking about how the human brain learns um, in order to find that solution, and and that might be because you know the human brain has some innate wiring or some some you know innate capacity for learning the structure of grammar that um, a machine, unless you're programming it, it in, does not. But if you know that and you understand that that in, in humans you have to have this kind of, you know, I mean, maybe we don't understand enough about it, but this this predisposition towards um, finding grammatical structure, you, could you just program, program that in and save yourself, you know, all, all the data crunching that the computer would need? Or, you know, is memory so cheap now that it just isn't worth your time? I think it's a combination of both of those things. Uh, it is, I think, much harder than uh, probably I would have given it credit for before I ever started to learn about these things to imagine programming all of the grammatical rules that would give a computer even toddler-like powers of speech. Uh, I mean, you know, one problem is ambiguity, uh, you know, the, and think here of, of uh, phonetic ambiguity, things like ice cream for ice cream, uh, you know, how, do you, how does a computer parse that? You know, you might think of something like uh, the 
president's new direction has split his party. Now, did you hear new direction or did you hear nude erection? Well, you know, a computer could parse that either way if you're a human being speaking quickly. And the number of rules that a human being relies upon in order to resolve even that relatively simple kind of ambiguity, linguists can't even describe all the rules. I mean, they talk about allophonic variation and phonotactics and all of these very sophisticated linguistics terms. But they also know that it's uh, that all of these things that they know about, all of the hidden auditory and context clues that you use to resolve those kinds of ambiguities, they know that that can't be all of the story because they know it is simply logically impossible to break certain kinds of ambiguities using mechanisms that they know about. So the corollary of that is quite simple. If we can't even write down all the rules, there's no way we could teach them to a computer. That gets me to the sort of, you know, um, garbage in, garbage out question uh, where, you know, we, we, we've we seen now cases in which artificial intelligence has made some of the same uh, biases or, or, or sort of, you know, judgment errors that human beings who program them uh, might make too. Like, for example, um, you know, if you're if you're trying to uh, get a mortgage, it still seems that, you know, the computer algorithms follow some some of the old redlining uh, patterns in which uh, people from the inner cities were were less likely to qualify. So can we talk a little bit about sort of bias in AI and sort of what you think about, you know, the current state of affairs? Um, and then we can talk about what to do about it. Absolutely. I mean, I think the the examples you're talking about point to a simple and sad legacy, which is the fact that human beings have made dumb, biased, malicious decisions pretty much as long as there have been decisions to make. And uh, it is absolutely the case, given how uh, integral data, uh, previous data on inputs and outputs is to training a model in artificial intelligence, it is inevitable that if you put biased uh, training data into an AI model that it will simply learn the biases. I mean, I like to describe AI uh, almost imagine a bouncer at a nightclub here, right? You know, you would think if you were going to program an AI bouncer, uh, you might program it with certain rules like, oh, you know, your genes aren't new enough or, you know, hey, you look too much like a statistics professor. There's no way you're cool enough to come into our club. And, and you know, that's how an AI bouncer might do it if you're just programming explicit rules. Whereas in reality, the way you might train an AI bouncer would be to simply replicate what the human being does. You take input-output pairs, you take a picture of everybody who comes up to the nightclub, you pair it with the bouncer's decision about whether to let them in or not, uh, and it would learn the patterns of what kinds of uh, customers the nightclub, you know, no statistics professors in, really cool rock stars uh, get to come in, that sort of thing. And if the bouncer is racist uh, or sexist or homophobic or has any of the other uh, terrible features that are widely documented in the history of humanity, then the AI system will learn those biases too. And it's one thing when you're talking about a bouncer to a nightclub. It's an entirely different thing when you're talking about a hiring decision uh, or some other kind of human resources decision in the firm. It's, an, it's another uh, thing entirely when you're talking about decisions in the criminal justice system. So I think that that bias in decision-making absolutely cuts both ways. Human beings have made these poor decisions forever. Machines absolutely can help, but we have to be clever, we have to be careful, we have to be open, and we have to rigorously police these algorithms for their biases. Yeah, so how do we do that? I mean, I kind of want to see sort of what what the... What, what the solutions might be here, because, you know, ultimately, we're sometimes we're not even aware of our own biases. Um, you know, is that something that do we need to make sure that the training data that we put in uh, are free of bias or that, you know, we call that out? Um, do you do you explicitly program in 
equality, <laughs> uh, you know, the way the way that we might with like an affirmative action policy, um, which also has its detractors. I mean, how do you how, how can machines sort of make us uh, a better and more more just decision makers? Well, I think the first thing to say about the role of machines in making important decisions is that their biases live in the open. I'm a statistics professor, so it probably won't surprise you that my answer as to how we police this is with math, right? We understand the biases of an algorithm by quantifying it. And if it turns out that there are quantifiable, known mathematical biases in a procedure, we fix them. And that's the great thing about an algorithm is that it doesn't uh, have an ego threat if you say, hey, you know, you're making a decision in a slightly biased way. Uh, you just program it to behave differently, program it to make use of the training data in a slightly different way. Or as a human, you put your thumb on the scale to say, look, the, the training data may be biased and will undertake a process of debiasing here in order to make sure that the results adhere to some basic standards of fairness. And again, this cuts both ways. Uh, you know, just because an algorithm lives on a silicon chip rather than in a little gray cell upstairs in a human brain uh, doesn't make it any intrinsically more susceptible, susceptible to bias. It's simply that the human decision-making protocols rarely can be mathematically quantified except in the aggregate. So that is a big advantage uh, of a machine learning or AI-based system for making some kind of of decision. So I, I think it's vigilance. I think you you know the the phrase you use calling it out, you know, making sure that we have a culture of fairness and a culture of objectivity. You know, I personally think that culture is a much more effective enforcement mechanism for uh, for good behavior than laws, although we need good laws too. That's all a part of it, absolutely. Let's uh put aside bias in decision making first. Are there any other kind of human cognitive weaknesses that you see uh, as AI being particularly good at helping us overcome? Um, and I mean this beyond just, you know, brute strength of computation. Um, what are some of the other things that we don't do well that you think uh, machines can help us do better? Well, I think there's, there are a lot of things, as you might imagine. Um, you know, I'll point to the kinds of archetypal decisions that might happen in a healthcare context as a really good example. And, you know, part of it is brute force of computation, but part of it is, you know, when human beings are confronted with data uh, there are very, you know, well-known, well-established behavioral quirks and heuristics and biases that we bring to the table. Uh, you know, we tend to view uh, probabilities not in uh, not in quantitative terms uh, when we're thinking intuitively, but we think we tend to think using, say, representative examples. That's what uh, Kahneman and Tversky, the behavioral scientists, might have called the representativeness heuristic, where we evaluate the plausibility of claim not, of a claim not using data, but simply by asking ourselves, is there a representative example that jumps to mind? So in healthcare, for example, uh, if you think about the kinds of decisions that a doctor has to make, you know, we would love them uh, to make decisions using data. That's the whole evidence-based medicine movement. But there is an awful lot of data in healthcare. If you imagine a doctor trying to decide, well, what should I do with this particular patient whose kidneys might be failing? You know, there are blood tests, there are urine tests, there are EEGs, there are EKGs, and soon, you know, we might have uh, da uh, data on a patient's genetic or epigenetic profile. There is just so much data that it is hard for a person to comprehend it all, even as a single, single snapshot much less as a story about health and well-being in that person that unfolds over time. So I think just the sheer ability of the machine to make use of that and to, and to actually put numbers to risks and to potential rewards associated with a particular path of treatment really could revolutionize healthcare if we get this right. 
when you have like these these algorithms that 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 can make these decisions and, and maybe even do a better job than say the physician that's in front of you, at what point do you I mean, I guess the question I'm kind of asking is I see now a lot of uh, uh, individuals who feel very empowered uh, with the the types of algorithms that they have access to, like the very simple example being Google Search um, or even Google Scholar, where all of a sudden people who don't have you know a deep understanding of a particular topic will do a pretty shallow search that you know probably you know has its own flaws, um, and then assume that they are experts in the topic. Is this something that you worry about when it comes to even domains like healthcare? Um, like, like why should a physician then go through four years of med school and all this other training if, like, the diagnosis that an AI can provide for them, you know, can be just as accurate? Well, I think maybe that's a bit of a cartoon in terms of how this would play out. I, I see the AI in a, in a healthcare context really more as that kind of guide on the side for the doctor, uh, not as somebody who's making treatment decisions uh, in real time. I, I see them as, as providing a source of objective, unbiased information about risk and reward about healthcare. And, and the, the doctor's job is to make sure that that question is posed correctly, uh, to make sure that the patient is interpreting things correctly and actually carry out the course of treatment. So I, you know, I, I, I have very little fear in the doctors that, that I know who, who think carefully about the role of evidence-based medicine and the role of these new machine learning tools in evidence-based medicine. To me, there's very little realistic fear of an AI tool replacing the job of a doctor. It'll just make them a lot better at the jobs they do because they, I mean, I I pity the doctors these days. They are drowning in data. There's just so much of it. So I, I think a tool that can help them make use of it more effectively, most of them would welcome that as something that can help them fulfill their Hippocratic oath a little bit more effectively. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's, that's, that sort of feeling of drowning in data is true for almost anyone who is, you know, in any kind of academic uh, setting or or in any kind of knowledge uh, uh, job, knowledge based job. So, you know, what what advice can you give for people who, you know, are in those kinds of jobs and just feel like overwhelmed by the amount of data out there, and then recognize that you know these artificial intelligence algorithms can actually do a better job of parsing the data than they can. Well, my message here actually may be a slightly contrarian one, uh, and it's uh, if you're thinking about if you're in a knowledge industry or you're a business person and, and you, you feel like you're drowning in data, my actually my number one piece of advice would be to beware of the AI vendor hacks. And here's what I mean by this. I mean, I really do not envy a person in that situation. Uh, maybe it's a non-tech area who has to uh, you know, sort of confront the reality of all the data uh, in their lives, and they simultaneously have to navigate through a minefield of, you know, consultants and AI evangelists and startups and, and software vendors and so on. Uh, I mean, there is so much hype about AI, uh, and and at the same time, so many, frankly, charlatans capitalizing on that hype uh, to peddle AI systems of dubious quality. I mean, if you believed all of the IBM Watson ads that were bought during the Super Bowl, you would come away thinking that AI is going to completely fix the healthcare system, all of its woes, and sell more Cheerios and make your toilet smell like roses. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, you know the stakes are huge. Uh, companies don't want to overcommit resources too early, uh, and they don't want to get out-hustled by some rival who's quicker to adopt a, a new kind of game-changing technology. Uh, so you know, my, my advice is to beware the hacks, right? I'm imagining how I would feel as a data science person if someone told me that I was going to have to look at 100 different paintings uh, and judge which were the real Rembrandts and which were the believable fakes, and that 
billions of dollars in my shareholders' value were resting on the outcome. Uh, and you know, also that there weren't any Rembrandt experts to hire because they all work for Google and Amazon. Uh, that's sort of where people in the corporate world and the knowledge industry world find themselves today. Uh, you know, you can hire a law firm to do legal scrutiny of a deal or an accounting firm to do uh, financial audit. Uh, but when it comes to machine learning and AI, it's basically the Wild West. So uh, maybe maybe beware the hacks is actually the number one message. What do you look for? What what you know, what are the signs of a hack um, versus a, a legitimately good AI? Well, I, yeah, I think it's tough to generalize, but beware of magical thinking, right? I mean, um, I, I think there there's a feeling uh, among non-experts that, that AI is, you know, it's kind of like Microsoft PowerPoint, right? It's something you can just download and install and it's going to work out of the box. Uh, and that's a misconception that I think is actively fostered uh, by what who I'm calling the vendor hacks, peddling AI solutions for this and that. Uh, but AI is is nothing at all like the normal software you're familiar with. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but the number one reason is something we keep coming back to is how strongly it depends on data. Every successful AI system I'm aware of is based on finding complicated patterns in data that are very domain specific. It's true for a self-driving car, uh, which needs data to learn the difference between a you know a fire hydrant and a bicycle. Uh, it's true for an Amazon Echo, uh, which relies on you know hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions, I should say, of data points of transcribed audio recordings. Uh, in AI, you know you don't program a machine to be smart; you program the machine to get smarter using data. Uh, and so the two corollaries to that are that you need vast quantities of really detailed, really domain-specific data, uh, and that the things that are measured in your data have to correspond really closely to some outcome that you actually care about. Uh, there are a lot of examples of how that goes wrong, by the way, education being a paradigmatic example. Uh, but the bottom line is this, no matter how many experts you have or vendors you hire, trying to build an AI system without high-quality data is really going to be like trying to fly a Boeing 787 without any jet fuel. And anybody who's trying to convince you otherwise, that it's not this very, very complicated uh, thing that requires ongoing support, and just think, hey, you're going to install it and it's going to give you answers out of the box, that person is almost surely selling snake oil. So, but that leaves us to, you know, this this position that we find ourselves in, which uh, there are a few big companies that seem to have, you know, a monopoly on huge data sets, uh, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Netflix. Is that really the future that we're heading towards? Because, I mean, no one's going to have better data on, on what we watch on television than, say, you know, the Netflix or the Hulu or, you know, a, a compatible program. And, and no one's going to have as much data in terms of our, our social lives as Facebook. Um, and so are we doomed to sort of rely on them to sort of set the set the tone for how artificial intelligence is going to be a part of our future? I don't think so. I mean, uh, you know, 10 years, 15 years ago, you would have said, who's got the most data on your viewing habits? It's not Netflix, it's Nielsen, right? And, and here we are and things are totally changed. Uh, you know, 15 years ago, you'd have said, who has the most data on your uh, on your calling histories and your calling patterns, and we would have said Nokia and Motorola. So uh, you know, I'm a little bit, um, a little bit more, I guess, circumspect about the prospect for for complete dominance by you know the big four tech firms, the Apples, the Amazons, the Googles, the Facebooks of the world. Uh, you know, if you just look back over the history, I mean, you know, remember Blockbuster Video, remember the Sony Walkman. Companies come and companies go, but the technologies just keep getting better. I think one of the thing that one of the things that people really fear when it comes to AI is 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 maybe not the evil overlord, but the fact that they're not going to have a job in the future because a lot of the things that we do today are just going to be done better and faster by a machine. Well, look, I mean, I think the uh, it is absolutely the number one public fear about AI, and just like any new new technology, it is almost certainly going to displace some people from their jobs. I mean, to cite just one example. 
uh, if self-driving car technology continues at its current pace, despite some you know recent tragedies, uh, it is surely going to displace taxi drivers and truckers, or at least a, a large fraction of them. And I absolutely think we need a better social safety net to help out people who are going to be on the losing end of those changes. Uh, but AI is going to create a huge number of jobs as well. I mean, the, then the long-term effect on jobs is is very, very far uh, from certain. Me personally, I mean, I see it growing the size of the economic pie for everyone by improving productivity, by creating markets for new goods and services that we we never dreamed of before. I mean, I'll just give you one example. Think of the problem of annotating data to get high quality, unbiased data for the kinds of AI algorithms that could change the world for the better. We'll need lots of people to do that too. I mean, it's not the world's most interesting task, but it's a necessary input uh, to successful AI. And frankly speaking, it's much safer and cleaner than something like slaughtering chickens or a whole lot of other jobs in factories or agriculture that you can imagine an AI type solution being used for. And then I think of the number of new data scientists that we need to recruit into healthcare alone. Uh, you know, we're talking huge reservoirs of value that we've already discussed. Uh, we're going to need an army of people to make sense of it all. Software people, hardware people, algorithms people, lawyers, compliance people, uh, algorithm bias watchdogs, and so on and so on. Uh, I just think there's no precedent at all for the idea that AI will create mass unemployment. Like every technology in history, uh, it will displace some people for the short term, and we need to respond to that humanely. Uh, but it will create new things that we've never dreamed of before. Uh, and uh, I, I hope uh, that we can all enjoy the wonders. Yeah. And I hope that it makes a lot of work less kind of routine and rote and, and allows us to do more things that, you know, humans really are quite good at and and enjoy more than, you know, just the the kind of, uh, you know, pin pushing or or sort of the just, just the, the, the routine tasks that, you know, a lot of jobs these days require. Absolutely. You know, we talk a lot about AI for, you know, healthcare or fraud detection or self-driving cars or AI in factories and it might help workplaces be more safe, but that kind of uh day-to-day uh, technology, you know, think of an Amazon Alexa on steroids that you could use in the workplace. I also very much look forward to the day when AI technology can unchain us all from our keyboards and and the office chairs that make us sedentary and sick. So, I think we're I think we're on the same wavelength there. So I want to remind our listeners that James Scott's book with Nick Polson, AIQ, How People and Machines Are Smarting Together, is now available at booksellers everywhere. Before we go, James, what's the one thing that, that AI hasn't solved yet that you are really looking forward to? I am looking forward to healthcare. I mean, I really am. I think that uh, that is the number one area of society where AI could do more good uh, than anything else. Uh, and I, I think it's a, a real shame, to be honest, that some of the best uh, minds in AI and machine learning have over the last 10 years been focusing on how to get you to click on more ads or to identify pictures of cats on the internet. And I think that the structural barriers we face to to successfully leveraging the social and financial value that's in healthcare data sets of the world, to me, that is the, the big challenge of the first half of the 20th century in technology. Uh, and there are a lot of hurdles, but also a lot of potential for wonderful things to happen. So I have to ask a follow-up question then, because I think ultimately it comes down to money. I mean, you know, the ads are what pay the programmers to figure out how to make people click on more ads. But healthcare is already so expensive, especially in the U.S., that it just seems like intractable for it to get even more expensive with the advent of more technology. Is that what we're looking at? Or do you think that AI and healthcare will actually help us bring the costs of healthcare down? I think it has tremendous potential for getting much better value out of the treatments that we actually undertake in the healthcare system. Um, 
if you think about all of the healthcare data that's out there, the, the you know, doctors, for example, you know, studies show that they spend a third of their time doing manual data entry uh, into an electronic health record system. And all of that very, very detailed data is used to send you or your insurance company or Medicaid or Medicare very, very detailed bills, but almost none of it is used to help people require fewer hospital visits and fewer expensive medical procedures in the first place. So I see a tremendous blue sky for the application of AI and machine learning technologies in preventive healthcare and in making smarter uh, value decisions about the treatment options that people actually are offered and undertake. Well, on that note, James Scott, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you, Andrea. It was an absolute pleasure. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And if you missed last week's episode, I encourage you to listen to it because it's part of this two-part little mini-series. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Eric Huddleston, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show, and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And remember that for $5 or more a month, you get an ad-free version of every one of our shows. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. Kishore Hari will be back next week. Inquiring Minds is brought to you by Udemy, the largest marketplace for online learning. Want to expand your potential? Who doesn't? With over 65,000 courses starting at just $11.99, Udemy can help you develop your skills and discover new passions. Students around the world have used Udemy to get ahead and even switch careers. Visit ude.my inquiring or download the Udemy app to learn anytime, anywhere. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.